Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Why does making friends as an adult feel so what hard? What should I wear on a first date? What the date? hell is a foreign But that Why hookup was not good. So what do I want my life to look like in five years? We, we want to know too. Since 2012, the Every Girl has been an online destination to help women around the world achieve the life of their dreams. Now, we're excited to bring you the same inspiring content with the Every Girl Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Every Girl Podcast. It's crazy. This is our last episode before Christmas. If you know me, you know I love Christmas more than anything yes. in the world. Josie is my, Josie is like decorating a palm tree over there. They used to call me Santa Claus back in the no. day. Yeah, no way. In high school, I dressed up as Santa Claus and delivered oh. our candy grams like the Glen Coco guy and Mean Girls. I just, wow. I couldn't love Christmas more. Emma, I want to know, what is your favorite holiday song? I haven't been as Christmas song-y recently. My go-to holiday song is probably White Christmas, because White Christmas is what I watch every year. I would watch it after every, the end of every winter final season. Now I will be watching it the first day of the holiday break, so... White Christmas, the song, also makes me feel that same warm and fuzziness. So it's the multimedia kind of thing. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a great song. For those who are unaware, Josie has a legendary Christmas playlist that is... You know about my Christmas playlist? Yes. (laughs) It's fully a thing. (laughs) Like, if Josie was going to become like a Spotify influencer, it would be for this Christmas playlist. It's vast. I know that, that you is hilarious. Choosing your top song is a big deal. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, I love All I Want for Christmas is You. I love the Mariah version. I love the Michael Bublé version. But I also yeah. I like the classics. Like I love putting on Frank Sinatra's Christmas album, Bing Crosby. So All I Want for Christmas is You slash classics is my vibe. I'm gonna say the hottest take that I'll probably ever say on this podcast. Okay. Baby, It's Cold Outside is up there for me in my favorite songs. I don't think that's horribly controversial. I think it's horribly controversial because everybody's like, it's the blurred lines of Christmas songs. It's so creepy. And and here's why it's not. No, it's not, Emma. I'm okay. Baby, It's Cold Outside. Yes. When you look at it, it feels creepy in our context of 2023, right? A girl being like, no, thank you. I probably should go home. And a guy being like, no, you should stay. And here's all the reasons why is creepy. But the song was written in 1944. Okay. Okay. So actually, get this. And people can look this up because I certainly went down this rabbit hole. It was actually written as a female sexual empowerment anthem. I'm not even lying. In the context of 1944, obviously it was way less sexually free for women than it is now there were so many pressures so when she's saying things like i ought to say no and at least i said that i tried like all of those things this article that i read a few years ago is explaining why those things are actually proving 
how she's not battling with this creepy guy. She's battling with the pressures of the society that she should say no, but she wants to say yes. Oh, you so just it blew is like, my mind. Right? It's so the it qualifiers mm-hmm. for saying like, mm-hmm. oh, I ought, wow. I ought to. At least I said that I tried. So like, I'm fighting back because that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So at least I can say that I tried, but I do want to stay with this guy. A line that people have problems with is when she says, what's in this drink? And people right. are like, that's about roofies. No, it's not. In 1944, they had no concept of roofies. That was not a known cultural thing. And it certainly wouldn't be in a song that's like this cheeky, fun song. What she actually means when she's saying what's in this drink, at that time, it was clear that it was actually more about like she wants more alcohol. Like by saying what's in this drink, she's meaning nothing's in this drink. This isn't stiff enough because she wants to have more alcohol so that she can feel like she can release the societal pressures and do what she actually wants to do, which is stay. And as you can see at the end of the song, you know, she starts then singing along with the guy and she's like, but baby, it is cold outside. That's her being like, okay, I did what I was supposed to do. Whatever women are supposed to do. Yeah. The walls, because that's what society told me to do. And now I'm like, okay, it is cold outside and I want to stay. So I'm going to stay. You're watching her battle with societal pressures to do what she actually wants to do. Not battling the sky being creepy. Yeah. That's my thesis. Baby, it's cold outside is a female sexual empowerment anthem. I will remember that throughout the winter as I go on my dating escapades. Hey, maybe that's a good dating line. Do people still do that? Like, oh, it's too cold. Your place is closer. I feel like using the weather as an excuse to connect with other people is never a bad thing. Let's say you want to hook up with someone, right? And you don't necessarily feel like it's culturally acceptable to be like, I want to hook up, come over. A normal thing is to be like, oh, it's cold. Do you want to like come over for a drink at my place, right? Uh, Sure. This is like the 1944 context of that. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. I kind of love that. Okay. Wow. That went on such a tangent. Let's get into the every girl. This week's Ask the Every Girl is... I'm meeting my hopefully future in-laws for the first time this weekend for the holidays, and I'm so nervous. Do you have any tips on making sure it goes well? I'm glad you picked an in-law one. I posted this on both my Instagram and the Evergirl podcast Instagram of just like, what advice do you need for the holidays? And so many of them were in-law related, which I guess makes sense. Yeah. Um, So I'm glad that you picked one about in-laws because clearly a lot of people need the advice. So tips on making sure it goes well, meeting potential hopeful future in-laws. I've given this tip before of how being liked is just a state of making sure that other people are enjoying their time with you. And in order to do that, you ask questions about other people, you look Mm. interested, you laugh at their jokes and not in a fake way, because also that comes off very weird. I want you to feel in the moment like, I'm being present and enjoying it, but I also feel like what I see most often going wrong with in-laws is because you go in really nervous and then you kind of come off a little standoffish or a little uncomfortable, and then they're not as warm and open to you because typically when you're meeting someone else's family, they're already slightly more critical of you or looking at a critical lens because they want to make sure that you're good enough for their child that they love. So my tip for getting anyone to like you is just be really interested. Like if they bring out something or other and the mom's like, oh, this is a plate that I had for my grandmother. 
that's your opportunity to not glaze over that and is to be like, oh my gosh, that's so special. How long has it been in the family or other just follow up questions about it? Or if they talk about a recipe that they've make every year to be like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. When did you start making this recipe? Families want to share with you. So don't feel like you have to go in making them think you're really smart, having these interesting stories. Like it really is so simple of just making them feel like they enjoy their time with you. And to me, that's as simple as being interested in what they have going on and, and making it feel like you want to connect. You want to get to know their family instead of being so hyper-focus, which I think we can do when we're nervous meeting certain people, especially like our significant others' families, the spotlight isn't on us. Shine the spotlight back on them and not in a forced way, but just a natural, like, I'm so interested in your family and learning about you guys. Because it's not just about them perceiving you. It's about you getting to know your partner's family, especially if you're not married or engaged yet. It can be a huge deciding factor in whether or not you want to stay with this person is understanding what their family dynamics are. Going in with the level of engagement and asking questions is not just about taking the focus off of yourself, but it's also about learning, which is valuable. Yeah, so true. It's like we talk about when you're going on dates, And so many people go into dates with the lens of like, I hope that they like me. Yeah. I think this is the same situation we can apply that to where, of course, you're going to want your hopeful future in-laws to like you, but also do you like them? Do you like how your partner is around them? Because that's also a big indicator of how they are is how are they acting with their family too. If you are nervous, think about the qualities that you really love that are core to your partner. Chances are. They're probably getting them from one or both of their parents in some way. And so when you are going into that interaction, trying to draw out those qualities or bring up those core conversations that you love to have with your partner, because chances are they'll be interested and engaged with the same sort of connectors. That's such a great way for it to not be this scary Oh, the future in-laws, like it can be so intimidating. So to remember whatever you love about your partner, a lot of that probably comes from them. The only other area of this that I think is probably tricky is going into families where it's not all sunshine and rainbows, as most families aren't. For example, if your significant other doesn't get along with their sibling and that creates tension. So I think that the important part is having conversations with your significant other before you go in so that you're not going in blindly. That is important. Questions I would ask your significant other is like, are there any dynamics that I should be aware of? Are there any topics that I should avoid? Anything that might come up? Is there anything that I shouldn't approach? Asking these questions is important. That's a great point. Another really important conversation that, and again, this is so case-by-case basis. I'm not saying this is true for everybody, but I do see in a lot of dynamics, I have actually many, many friends with this experience where they start to have struggles with, typically it's like their mother-in-law or could be a sister-in-law or even a father-in-law, whatever, cousin, anything. Like they start to have struggles with that family member and their significant other is not stepping in. My belief is that if it's their family, they need to step in. If it's your family, you need to step in. They have so much context with their family members so that if they're stepping in, they're setting those boundaries. The family has so much more context where they can accept that boundary. If you're the one that's having to set certain boundaries, 
all they have the context of is that boundary. And I think that can provide a huge strain on your relationship. For example, I have many friends who their mother-in-laws like either say things that are really inappropriate to them, like they're really pushy about when are they having children or they're saying maybe not very nice things to them. So I think that that's another important conversation. I know for this person, it's the first time that they're meeting their in-laws and um, I'm hoping and thinking it's going to go amazingly and you're going to crush it. And it's all just about coming off interested and excited and present and all of those things that we talked about before. But I'm also thinking about for the people where they're going into a situation where a family member or maybe an entire family has that kind of almost like toxic reaction to you to begin with. I would have that conversation with your partner. Like maybe if I'm feeling uncomfortable, I'm going to tug on your arm. And that's when you need to say something. You need to yeah. be like, mom, don't say that to her. Or be like, oh, I know that you're feeling really uncomfortable. Yeah. So we're going to wrap this up and leave. I obviously think it's different if you're newly dating and they have more allegiance to their family. If you are in a committed partnership, which I'm assuming you are since you're saying you're hopeful future in-laws rather than just your significant other's family, if you're in this committed relationship, it should be you two as the priority. Yeah. You have created your own family. So your 100%. significant other should be protecting you even from their own extended family because you have created your own family. So I would also have that conversation with your significant other before of if things become uncomfortable, I expect you to step in. I'm not going to be the one to say anything. You're the one that needs to say something and maybe talk through those situations. Or if things get really bad, you also should be able to have an escape plan. It's like in Four Christmases when they say mistletoe. When they, I guess if, if you are feeling nervous and uncomfortable going into either of your families, I think it's a good idea to have an escape plan together. At the end of the day, the point is to be enjoying the holidays. Your relationship comes before all extended family because you have created your own family. It's chosen it's, family. Like it's yeah. more powerful than we treat it. Let's dive into the episode because Vienna Farron is the person to talk to when you have tricky family dynamics. Yeah. And we don't get as much oh, in-laws in this episode. So I'm glad that we talked a little bit about that here. But she does give so many amazing tips for navigating this time of year with family. So Vienna Farron is a very sought after marriage and family therapist. She is known as Mindful MFT on social media. I'm sure you guys have seen posts from her. A lot of her posts have gone viral. She's built up this massive community and following based around the idea that we can heal from childhood wounds in order to stop negative family dynamics and personal patterns. I wanted her to come on this time of year because I know that the holidays, like we talked about, for me, you know, I'm obsessed. It's the most wonderful time of the year, but also they bring up a lot of stress. And for a lot of people, yes. they are the most stressful time of year. So I wanted Vienna to come on to share some really helpful tips for you to support yourself, set boundaries during time with family, but also we dive into more that I think is really healing for anyone in general, regardless of how you're spending the holidays or what your family dynamics are like. We also talk about identifying origin wounds and why knowing this about yourself will shape your reality. This is such a powerful conversation. I really do think that this will change people's lives. We Absolutely. also 
accidentally went into a little bit of personal therapy for me at the end about how my origin wounds are showing up in my relationship. No, I was literally (laughs) sitting on the call about to whip out my journal. You'll be bringing it up with your therapist. Like it just it's so good. This is super helpful going into this time of year. But also, like I said, regardless of what your family dynamics are like, this is really powerful for healing in general, for your relationships, for how you can show up as your best self, how you can get rid of limiting beliefs. Let's dive into it. Please welcome Vienna Farron to the Evergirl podcast. And I hope you all have a wonderful holiday. Happy holidays. What is an origin wound? And to give our audience some context, where did yours come from? Mm, So I love the language of wounds. I think sometimes when we're talking about pain and trauma, it's so easy for people to check out, especially if they feel like they didn't have a terrible enough story or they don't have trauma or they compare it to people that they know. And they're like, well, that's not my life. And I think wound was something that felt a little bit more accessible for people. When we were kids, it's like we had our physical wounds, right? You like scrape your knee, it starts to bleed, somebody cleans it up, puts a Band-Aid on it, you need to give it some air for it to heal. Then you take the Band-Aid off, there's a scab, and then you bump up against that wound again, right? And it starts bleeding, the scab falls off. We know what the physical wound looks like, but the emotional wound obviously is hidden and yet it's still experienced that way, right? There is a first time in which we come face to face with questioning our worthiness, questioning our belonging, questioning how important and prioritized we are to the important people in our lives, questioning trust around us, and then questioning our safety. And for some of us listening, you might be like, oh, all five of those, right? And then for others, we might realize like, oh yeah, like it was really hard for me to feel like a priority in my family, or it was really hard to trust the people around me to follow through on their word, for example. So when I think about origin wounds, I'm thinking about the first time. Now, some people will say, shoot, I can't remember, right? And that's okay. Maybe it's the last time you can remember. Even if the first time you remember it is in your 20s, that's okay. But there's going to be a first time in our experience where there was a rupture in one or many of those things. And that's the work here because what I have found is that these firsts, that rupture in a significant way set then the trajectory of our lives, right? It sets, this is how I'm going to relate to other people, or this is the belief that I'm going to hold about myself or the world around me. And those are the things when we continue to go through life, holding that and really not reconciling it is what leads us into our unwanted adult patterns that all of us, right, can say like, is there any unwanted pattern you have in your life? It's like, yeah, of course there are. And those things, what I would say, are directly related to the irresolution of the pain from the past. And when I sat down to write this book, I was like, okay, what are all of the wounds that people could have? And ultimately, I wound up synthesizing it into five origin wounds, which are worthiness, belonging, prioritization, trust, and safety. So I find the first time that there is a rupture to go back into that space, if we have access to it, to do some healing work around that so that we can actually change our behaviors uh, and our choices present day. So basically, an origin wound is what you didn't receive from childhood. It's affecting how you're viewing reality or what you're seeking out, how you're navigating relationships through adulthood. Exactly. Yeah. So 
for example, with a worthiness wound, if you question your value, your worth, because you grew up in an environment where there was conditional love, for example, and I know you asked me about mine, the two most prominent ones for me were around worthiness and safety. My dad was someone when I was not well behaved, when I was being someone he didn't want me to be, if I was challenging, if I was defiant in any way, I would get the silent treatment from him. And that was the punishment. And it sometimes would go for days or weeks on end. And so I learned that in order to have connection and closeness and support and help, which is how he was the rest of the time, I needed to be well-behaved. I needed to not be difficult. I needed to fly under the radar in order to get those things. But when I was, quote unquote, difficult, when I was defiant, when I pushed back, when I wanted to do things my way instead of his way, then I would be given the silent treatment. And I learned that it was better to be easygoing and it was better to not really have a say and not really have boundaries. This tied closely to the significant rupture that happened in my family. I'm an only child. My parents went through a nine-year divorce process that started when I was in first grade. And my parents were Gosh, they were crashing and burning around me. A lot of manipulation, a lot of gaslighting, a lot of paranoia, a lot of emotional flooding, like they were not well. And I saw that very clearly. And because they were not well, I decided that I needed to pretend to be well. I needed to pretend to be fine. And that really ties to the worthiness piece too, right? I didn't feel like there was space for me to not be okay. And so I presented like I was fine. I was easygoing. I was not super difficult. I didn't think that there was space for my emotion, right? Any of this. And so I existed in life as this easy girl and needless girl, really, who became a needless woman. And I think the tie between the roles that we take on in our childhoods are often really similar to the roles that we embody in our adult relationships, too. And sometimes it's a path of opposition. And so we'll sort of like swing the pendulum. But for me, I had maintained this needless child, needless woman role. And I felt like the only way for me to maintain connection and closeness and attachment and relationship with others, especially in romantic relationships, was to not have boundaries, to pretend like I was fine and unaffected by things that were deeply affecting me and were deeply not fine. And that was the belief system that I held until I started to identify a name and really be in the work with this origin pain. That's one of the examples of my worthiness wound and the way that it showed up, not just in my childhood, but also in my adult relationships. Wow. It's so powerful even to just name it. Our perception is reality, right? So it's so easy to look at the world and always be thinking, I'm the victim or this is something that happens to me. And so to feel like yeah. we are empowered to make decisions, like we get to be in control of our lives because we get to heal ourselves, I think is such an empowering piece of it. The other really important thing that you just said that I want to point out is that, yes, I'm sure that there's bigger, more traumatic events that people can point to and say, that was really damaging for me. That really impacted my life. But it also might be because, again, like you said in the book, that there's a lot of people that you'll meet with and they'll be like, oh, I had a great childhood. Everything was perfect. Everything was wonderful. But there can still be some tendencies 
for a very lighthearted example, being a middle child, I have a classic middle child syndrome where I just like want to feel special all the time. I just want to be distinct. I want to feel special. That's just like a very surface level example. But I think that it's important to connect the more traumatic events that happen in your childhood, but also for the people who are like, I had a wonderful childhood to know that there are still things that it doesn't mean your parents did anything wrong. It doesn't mean that you didn't have a good childhood, but there are ways that your mind learned to seek out safety, seek out love in a different way that you now can change because it might be impacting your adulthood. Yeah, it's one of the things that I see where people go really wrong with the healing work, and I call it wound comparison in the book. And the goal of this book, I say right from the start, is not to throw our parents under the bus. We don't need to point the finger. We're not trying to blame. We're just trying to acknowledge. And when we do wound comparison, it's a distraction away from us just acknowledging what is true. You can absolutely have had a really lovely childhood. And also, there might be some experiences in there that need to be named. It makes me think about a client of mine, Andre, that's the alias. He loved his mother so much and respected her so deeply. Single mama, working multiple jobs, They did not get a lot of time together because she was working so hard. They would go to church together on Sundays and then have brunch together after church. And then she'd go off to a job and he would spend week in, week out really protecting her. She was doing so much and he could even rationalize that this was actually her way of prioritizing him, which you could really understand. And yet it was so important and so needed for him to be able to still say that he wanted to be prioritized by her through time spent with her, period. And Mm. I think when we sit in this space of focusing so much on the context only, right? Like mom is working so hard. Mom is doing what her parents didn't do for her. It, It removes us from connecting with our own experience that you craved for more connection, that you craved for more time spent. And sometimes as kids, we feel guilty. We feel like we're complaining about something. We feel like we're not grateful enough. And so for those who maybe feel very protective of the adults in their lives, I think it's like, how do we find space where we can hold the compassion and the grace and the love and the respect for the adults while also still tapping into what our emotional experience was growing up? Because if we constantly focus on the context We're going to skip over where our pain is. Pain wants to be resolved. And pain is so clever because it will find countless ways (laughs) to poke its head up and represent itself over and over and over again, like in these relational patterns in order for us to actually turn back around towards it and acknowledge it and do the work that we need to do with it. In order for its grip to loosen on us, pain doesn't is not out to destroy us. It does not want to ruin our lives. It is not cynically rubbing its hands together, being like, in what other way can I destroy you? Pain just wants to be acknowledged and felt and processed and witnessed and grieved so that we can then show up in our lives differently. But if we constantly ignore it or distort it or invalidate it or minimize it or distract away from it, then pain is going to work overtime to find ways to get our attention. It's such a beautiful way to describe pain because we so often view pain as the enemy and pain is Mm -hmm. the problem. So it's beautiful to think of it as maybe pain is actually our mind's way 
of saying there's something here you need to pay attention to in order to be living your happiest life, in order to get to where you're meant to be. There's something here to pay attention to. The first chapter of your book is titled Your Past is Your Present. Can you explain why it's important to look at our childhood and those dynamics of family origin? Like, is that the root of any current problem? Even if people out there are like, no, 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 there's no way it's related. Yes. I mean, my work is looking at our family of origin, the family systems that we grew up in. Is it possible that a wound comes later on in life? Absolutely. We know that teachers, coaches, religion, culture, romantic relationships. There are so many areas in which pain can surface and and show up and, and sometimes even for the first time. Of course, not every painful experience that we had is originated in the family system. And yet that is our first place for our education around everything. These are our first primary relationships with our caregivers and our larger family system around us. And we do need to go there. People don't like looking back because we've arrived at the place that we're at today without doing it. People like to keep their eyes focused forward. I think sometimes we're afraid that if we open up Pandora's box, what are we going to find? We feel overwhelmed that we're going to get stuck there, right? It's like, oh, shoot, if I do open this door, am I going to get lost in my depression? Am I going to find something that I wasn't prepared to find? And I want to try to avoid that as much as possible. We are scared of coming in contact with what might be there. We also are really protective sometimes of the adults. They did the best that they could with what they had. They were so much better to me than how their parents were to them. There are endless narratives that keep a person from wanting to go back. and yet. In the over 25,000 hours of therapeutic work that I've done with individuals, couples, and families, there's never been a time in which going back was not where the answer is. And that feels important to say because if you're so committed to just pressing forward without going back there, I think the patterns will continue to present. It's like, if you can make a behavioral change, great, go for it, do it. If you don't need to turn back to do that and that's something that sticks and stays, amazing. But if all of your attempts at creating change keep bringing you back to the patterns, then that is a really, really good indicator that you're going to need to turn your head around. I call it the like swivel head you know, where it's like, look, I don't need you to stay in the past forever. That is not the focus. At some point, we're going to turn our heads back around. But we do need to turn towards it for a little bit of time in order to see what is there and name it and connect some of the dots and do some of that healing work that I describe in the book. It makes so much sense because our childhood is our formative years. I kind of think of it like almost in the same way that when we're one or two, we start learning language and we are understanding the world through language. We are defining everything around us like mom, dad, tree, bus, like we're defining everything based on the language we learn. We can learn language later in life. We can learn a totally new language, but there's still that foundational language that was given to us. And like we we never question when we're young, is this the right language? Is this the language that feels truest to me? And it's the same thing with the language in which you view yourself, your worth, your relationships, your dynamics. Yeah, right. Like when we're kiddos, when we're really tiny, we just accept what the adults are doing and saying and telling us about the world around us, about ourselves, about themselves. We don't know how to question that. 
And intuitively, there might be certain things as we eventually start to be like, oh, that that feels off. Or, hmm, are you hiding something? Or like, that didn't quite add up, right? So there comes a time where maybe we do start to question or we become a little bit more oppositional in response to how some of the adults might be treating us or treating others. But there is a period of time, like you said, this is our education of how to love and be loved and how to communicate and how to fight and what boundaries look like or don't look like or what control is or what intimacy is. All of those things are laid out for us and it sets the tone. It's through these relationships where we either learn that we are worthy as we are or we are not. We belong or we are an outsider. We are important or we are less important. We can trust or we can't. We are safe or we are not. And it is so important for us to go back into that space to see if there was a time that we needed to survive something or adapt based on what was around us and how that is still presenting today. One of the parts of your book that hit me so hard was when you talk about the relationship between authenticity and detachment. Can you speak about this and why do we learn to sacrifice authenticity for attachment? Yeah. So I love um, Dr. Gabor Mate talks about how authenticity and attachment are essentially our two lifelines as kiddos. But when attachment is threatened, we as children will always trade in our authenticity for it because it quite literally is our survival. And so to have attachment, to have love and connection and presence and validation and our food and our nourishment and our sleep, like if I need to be someone other than who I am to get that, I will. I have to. I must. And so there's often this trade of authenticity that does happen in order to get a parent's attention or get their love. I don't know what it was like for you. I've heard this with many families where you sort of grow up in this environment where it's like, this is who we are. This is what we believe. This is how we exist in the world. And be like us and you'll be okay not be like us, then you're on the outside. And there's beautiful things to belonging. Like we have traditions that we are coming up into a holiday season here as we speak. And oftentimes there's lovely holiday traditions that families have. But outside of some of the beautiful stuff, there's also this pressure to conform. There's a pressure to adapt to how we are and what we believe. And if you believe something or are something other than what we accept, you're going to have a hard time where there ought to be belonging, to be who you are as you are and to be loved and accepted and to have access to all of those things regardless of that is often where children or where we for the first time learn that we have to be a little bit more this or a little less that or we have to disconnect from our authenticity and pretend to believe something that we don't actually believe in order to have love and connection and, and closeness. That one is so powerful to me when you wrote in the book, to stay connected to you, I must abandon me. In order to belong, we learn we have to abandon ourselves so that we don't get abandoned by others. It made me tear up a little bit because I think we all can think of many examples, both in childhood and in adulthood, where we subconsciously or consciously chose to abandon ourselves, to not be true to ourselves 
because we need to in order to be loved. We've been trained that. And why I say that I think this one feels very universal to me is, is maybe even if it's not the belonging wound from the family, but you go to. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Fifth grade and you realize all yeah. the other kids don't like playing flute and they don't want to hang out with you because you like to play a flute. So you have to learn. Well, I better learn to like soccer if I'm going to want to be liked by the other kids or you get picked on for things or, or then you go out into the real world and you're working a job and you realize that this trade doesn't get you many friends. So you have to change that trade. You know, like we all are constantly adapting in order to belong. But in doing that, we are always abandoning ourselves. Yeah, I, I love that line. In order to be connected to you, I must be disconnected from me. It's so potent. And yeah, I know it well, too, especially as like the people pleaser and this person who learned to really adapt and truly disconnect from myself in order to try to keep the peace or try to keep people liking me. And it took me very far away from myself, so far away that I like didn't know <laughs> what I even wanted or liked or what was acceptable yeah. or not. It really, it, it was a lot of work to restore this. And I love that you're giving the examples because it's society and it's culture and it's school and it's sports and it's religion. It's all of these things that start to pressure us into, oh, I want to be a part of something. And so who do I need to be or what do I need to do in order to be a part of that? But if being a part of that requires us to disconnect from ourselves, there's such a loss there. I love that you call it a loss because it is. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, but this idea, especially for women, that we need to be selfless. And that's a great characteristic. But I'm like selfless. That literally means you're void of self. You don't have self. Yeah. And that's what we're telling people to strive for. So you fit the mold. Right. So you're thinking about other people, but you lose yourself. And that's supposed to be our big right. goal. So how can people start prioritizing authenticity over attachment if they realize I've definitely sacrificed my authenticity for attachment my whole life. The hard part about this is that there are consequences to these shifts. It doesn't come with rainbows and sunshine. We have to be prepared for that. I wish that I could give a prettier picture, honestly, but I think the reality of it at the end of the day is that we have to strengthen our ability to tolerate discomfort in order to reconnect with self. We must. And that's hard for us because discomfort is hard. Being disliked is hard. Upsetting people is hard. Disappointing someone else is hard, especially if so much of yourself has been built on 
playing that role with others. We have to be able to tolerate that discomfort. And we also have to be able to tolerate the outcomes that you desire as it relates to others may not be the outcomes that you get, but the outcomes that you desire as it relates to self is what you're on a path for. We have historically prioritized other over self. That shift is hard. And it's not to be like, okay, we're going to prioritize self. And so that means like screw others. I think sometimes we are so challenged at existing in this nuance of like, of course, no one is saying screw others. And we don't care about anybody else in order to care about self. We as humans can always be thoughtful and considerate of others. We can be kind to others. And also at some point, we must prioritize the self over prioritizing the other in order to get to this place. There's this beautiful quote from one of my favorite poems, The Invitation. And it says, I want to know if you can disappoint another to stay true to yourself. And I remember when I read that, it's like, oh, nope, don't know how to do that. I had to read it again and again and again. I want to know if you can disappoint another to stay true to yourself. And that became this very important goal in my life, which was not, okay, this is so fun to disappoint other people. Not that, right? But that like, it is okay for other people to be uncomfortable. It is okay for other people to come face to face with difficult emotions within themselves. I cannot prioritize others though at the expense of myself, at the expense of disconnecting from myself. So back to your question, how do we do this? We have to recognize what's at stake here. We have to build up our tolerance level for people being upset, people feeling disappointed, people telling us something about ourselves that might be hard to hear because they have a hard time processing their own disappointment. But when we are so clear on what is true for us, that has to become the thing that we hold front and center. And you have to be willing to face that discomfort along the way in order to practice and strengthen this muscle. I love the idea that disappointing others is a muscle and prioritizing yourself is a strength and it's a skill. We're taught your job is to please other people. Your job is to make other people like you. So even just switching, your main priority, your job is to avoid disappointing to yourself, is to avoid abandoning yourself. I think even that switch, like, yeah, it's going to take a lot of time to change all of that. That's been years and years and for many people, decades and decades of prioritizing belonging over authenticity. But even just that change of actually the job is to be authentic to you, to belong to you. I think that in itself changes so much. At least it does for me. But it's hard because you lose people. That's part of the consequence, right? Is that you will sometimes lose people. You might lose a relationship. You might lose a friendship. You might have people not want to talk to you for a bit of time. When people are not emotionally mature themselves, you're going to get immature responses. And it's that immature response from others that often feels intolerable to us. It's why we adapt for so long because we don't trust that other people can manage their own emotions. And so we are constantly protecting in response to emotional immaturity. And when you grow up with emotionally immature parents or adults in your life, 
then you've really worked that muscle. That's what my childhood was. It was like I was a, a part of a system where there was incredible emotional immaturity. I told you before, one little piece of it was the silent treatment. That is emotional immaturity. It's also abuse. And I learned how to navigate the people around me in a way that protected them from their fragility, essentially. Part of this work is allowing people to be in their immaturity and facing those outcomes that are harder for us, but knowing that we are still on a path committed to self discovery and self-reclamation and staying true to oneself. Obviously, going into the holidays, this I know is going to be the number one question on most people's mind is, help, Vieta, I'm stressed out. Because the holidays, unfortunately, like it's the happiest time of year. But then for so many people, it is a time of like extreme stress because going to see family can trigger some things or can bring up some things. So I'm thinking about family dynamics where there is fighting happening, where it brings out insecurities within them, where it's triggering for people. So what advice do you have to avoid repeating negative family dynamics or just like setting boundaries for yourself during this time when you might be with family more often? It is so easy to lose all of the work that you have done over the year in these moments. It's like you walk through those doors and you're like, oh, I'm 13 again. I think it's one of those things that so many of us know. And like you said, for some people, the holidays are the happiest time of year, the best time of year. And for some, it's the worst time of year. It's the most abusive time of year. It's the most critical time of year. It's the most stressful time of year. And a lot of people feel a sense of pressure, like, you have to go see your family. No, you don't. There's so much shame around when people set boundaries for themselves. And I think that's one of the things that we have to just bring so much awareness to is what are you willing and available for during this time? And holding that line, most people, even if they have a hard time with their family, don't necessarily want to be cut off from them or never see them. There are certainly cases where that is true and where that is a really good decision. But most of the people I talk to want to still find a way to have relationship with family. But it's, okay, how much can I tolerate? And can I set a time boundary for myself that is actually reasonable? So for example, instead of going for three days and sleeping over, I'm going to go and drive and just spend the day and have the meal. And then I'm going to leave afterwards. It's reminding yourself what is likely going to show up. So one of the things that I notice in people, and I was guilty of this too, is maybe this time it'll be different. Yes. You ever, <laughs> gosh, oh, yeah. maybe this time it'll be different is the story that just keeps on giving and giving. Maybe this time will be different. What if this year we said, maybe this time it's going to be exactly the same and exactly how it's always been and exactly how I expect it to be? This is our relationship with hope, which is a tricky one. Hopefulness is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It saves us sometimes. But other times, it is directly attached to our suffering. And it's the thing that makes us forget and disconnect from what it is that we know to be true. And so what I'd encourage people to do is really reconnect to what do I know to be true? Right. Instead of living in this fantasy land, this idealized version of what I would like this parent or this adult or this family to be, what can I connect to that I know is true? What can I expect? 
stop being surprised when people do unsurprising things. We have to remember that, okay, if dad has always been critical of my body, then likely dad is going to continue to be critical of my body during the holidays. If mom really drinks excessively, I should know that she's going to do the same thing here. Whatever the story might be, and some of it might be a little bit more subtle than that, but it's like, what do we know to be true and how do we prepare ourselves for this? How do I not engage in the same way that I have historically? What are some of the things that I need to do? Maybe I need to go outside and be in nature. Maybe I need to, if I'm going with a partner, can we have a conversation ahead of time so that we have a plan for either leaving or for getting up from the table or who is my support? If I'm not going with a partner, can I have a friend on speed dial where we're able to just chat with each other, text or call or something when something gets hard and we can validate and witness what it is for one another. Is there a sentence that you can have that you can use to respond to a topic that you don't really feel comfortable engaging in just to set the boundary and disconnect? Can you up and leave if something starts to feel uncomfortable? One of my favorite ones, though, is the voice memo is to Remind yourself with your own voice of what it is that you would likely need to hear in a moment when something feels overwhelming or stressful. And before you even enter into that space, you could even record it a couple weeks out. Speak to yourself and leave yourself a message so that when you feel dysregulated, you can hear a regulated you voice speaking to you. And reminding you and validating you or witnessing something with you that helps ground. I love the voice memo and I think that's such a good tool, especially in moments like this where activation in the family system is likely. I'm sure we all have had this experience where we feel like we've done all this work on ourselves. Like you were saying, we're adults, we're new people, we do our own laundry, like we're adults out here in the real world. And then we go home. And it's like things trigger us like nobody's business. So for people who feel that almost like activation where it's like you lose control, you no longer feel like the calm, cool, collected adult that you are and go into full trigger mode. Is there any advice that you have for them to avoid getting into those fights, whether it's with parents, siblings, whatever? When we feel activated, it's a really good indicator that we're no longer our adult selves in that moment. I I really offer this in a very gentle way. But when we're reactive, one of the questions that has always helped me when I have access to it, really, these are imperfect moments because there's other moments where I'd be like, oh, screw off. But when it's a <laughs> when there's availability to it to almost be like, what age do I feel right now? And I love that question because it is this reminder that historical stuff is here. And I am no longer feeling like you said, you're like cool, calm, collected, wise self. She's gone. She's out the door. I'm a therapist. I do this work day in and day out. Even I have these moments, right, where all of a sudden I'm like, "Ah, you're trying to control me. I'm going to be a 13-year-old defiant person (laughs) who's ready to go to battle with you. But if I can disrupt that by asking myself, okay, how old do you feel right now? Oh, I feel 13 or I feel eight or I feel six, whatever it is, right? Like just tuning into that because in that moment, 
what can the self that is here, the wise, emotionally mature self, how can she respond to that person? You're not going to do this probably in this space with them around, but like excusing yourself, maybe going to a different room, maybe going outside for a walk, maybe going to the bathroom. It's like, okay, I feel 13 right now. And I feel 13 because what is familiar about this moment? And whether it's I'm not feeling understood or I'm not feeling heard or I'm not feeling seen or I'm not feeling respected or I am not feeling prioritized. I keep telling people that this is not something that I want to talk about and you don't care and you just keep railroading. Whatever it might be, it's to witness the self, to acknowledge her, to really be alongside of her. And we know that our behaviors and responses, they all make sense with context. They all make sense with context. Whatever the response is, when we understand the story around it, which is often historical, our response makes a lot of sense. And so this shift away from shame, this shift away from guilt, the shift away from embarrassment and this shift towards curiosity. How old do I feel right now? What's familiar about this moment? What wound is present right now? How can I respond to myself? Sometimes the naming can be enough, but in my book, I, I work the reader through an origin healing practice, which is naming the wound, but then also witnessing the pain, witnessing the loss, grieving listen, we're not going to do this all, you know, at like our our parents' home for Thanksgiving. But this is the work that we have to engage in. And so if you notice an activation, I make sense. I make sense with context. This makes sense with context immediately. This makes sense with context. Remove yourself from the situation. How old do I feel right now? Can I witness this? Can I validate what is there? Can I move away from shame, guilt, embarrassment and actually enter into curiosity and just connect to that? And maybe that's where the voice memo comes in too. But I think with families, it's just so easy to go get on the merry-go-round. It's like we engage in some kind of pattern, some kind of loop. Maybe there's a power dynamic going on. We're trying to convince them to finally see something that they've never been able to see. We're trying to get them to acknowledge something that they can't acknowledge. Disconnect, disengage, stop being surprised when they show up in the way that we know they're going to show up. We don't have to hate them. We don't have to not be in relationship with them necessarily, but we have to understand that there are limitations and constraints and blocks. And what does it look like for us to prepare to engage with someone knowing that they cannot do the thing that we would like them to do? And how can I be in relationship with you if you cannot do that? And that, that takes grieving, right? Because there is a loss of the fantasy of who we wish they would be or how we wish they would be. And this is work that will take some time. But I think as we enter into the holidays and maybe spending a little bit more time together than we do throughout the year, it's a very good reminder of who do I know is going to be there? What expectations can I have that are realistic? Let's stop being idealized and actually name the things that we can expect and have a plan that moves us out of shame and moves us towards curiosity. What about with, romantic relationships and dating, where do you see origin wounds showing up? Everywhere. <laughs> Our romantic relationships the answer. are... Uh, it's the answer. Everywhere. Everywhere. Because when we're with someone and I don't, you know, going on a first date, I usually think about dating once we've really chosen each other. 
there's so much mirroring that happens there. Our intimate relationships, they really are our gift into our own self and relational discovery. People say that about children as well. They are our greatest teachers. And I would say that our romantic relationships and our children are our greatest teachers if we're willing to look. Here's one thing I want to say, though, about dating and relationships. We choose people who have similar levels of irresolution. So we might have very different stories. And those stories and the irresolution may present in very different ways. But the level of irresolution is going to be quite similar. That's important because I often hear people say, oh, I'm the messed up one in the relationship. Their family's so wonderful. My family's so messed up. And I'm like, okay, all of that can be true. And yet still you guys are together because you've come to resolve something. And whether that resolution means that you get to stay together and quote unquote live happily ever after, or that resolution is actually about you departing from one another, TBD. But you have come to resolve something. And the levels of irresolution, if you have chosen one another, they are similar. Wow. That makes so much sense for people that feel like they keep ending up with all these fuck boys or they're not good partners. Or I think there is something empowering. And again, not to place blame on yourself and not to be mad at yourself, but to realize what wound is it within me that's allowing sure. me to choose this similar level to me, right? So there is some empowerment where you feel like you get to control it. You get to change it rather than feeling like people are just doing things to you. What is it that you're almost like opening that wound to allow to be done to you? I like to use the word, in what way am I participating? And I know mm. that this can be tricky, especially in certain dynamics. Of course, neither one of us obviously is victim blaming, for example. But there's something beautiful about like, oh, okay, like what part is participating in this, right? Am I in these relationships with fuckboys because... I have a worthiness wound that hasn't been resolved. I am under the belief that most of us have a worthiness wound amongst others. But like when I was writing about the worthiness wound, I was like, does every human on the planet have a worthiness wound to some degree? And that would uh, make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I still think the answer is probably yes. And for some shows up in, in really significant ways. But it's like, what part of me is participating in not being chosen? And what part of me is participating in not feeling good enough or worthy enough of someone treating me differently? Get curious about the part that is participating in a dynamic. I keep pursuing, you know, emotionally unavailable people. I keep trying to convince them to become available. Maybe if they just spend more time with me, they'll actually want to be in a relationship. Maybe I can get this person to change their mind. What is familiar about that? Like, what quest are you on? It's not as simple as you choose emotionally unavailable people because you yourself are emotionally unavailable. Sometimes that's true. But other times it's like you grew up in a family system where you had to constantly convince adults to show up for you. You had to constantly convince and change people's minds. And so you continue to do that in romantic relationships. There has got to be a curiosity in this space instead of just saying like, oh, that person is awful. Where is your participation in this? And what can we get to know about that? And how is that 
an extension of your resolution around your wounds. That's really helpful for me too, just to give more examples, because Mm -hmm. I would say I have the opposite wound where I don't think anyone's ever good enough for me. And so I'm like hypercritical of my boyfriend. I've been working on this. So to realize like, what is my part in this? Where am I not allowing myself to be fully happy rather than thinking he's not doing enough? It makes me feel so good. And maybe that's weird, but it makes me feel so good feeling like I can change something. There's a part of me that I can change to be happy. Like I get to have control over how I show up in this relationship, how I get to experience this relationship and how I get to treat people I love and expect to be treated. Like there's something that is, I feel like I keep saying that with you this whole conversation. It just to me is so empowering to feel the control that we get to have in how we experience life. Yeah. What does it protect you from to maintain that nobody's ever good enough for you? Wow. This is personal therapy for me. Actually, after reading the book, I brought this to my therapist and and we worked Mm -hmm. on a lot of this too. And what I've identified is like, for some reason, I am so terrified of being in the relationship 30 years down the line where we're just no longer happy together. And so Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do is almost like diagnose, oh, if you show up better here now, that means that we won't be 50 years old and miserable. You know, like I don't have fears of cheating. I don't have fears of us not getting married. The fear is I don't want to wake up at 50 years old and just not be happy. And again, I don't know where that came from, but that's where I identified it. And maybe it's easier for me to be like, I'm not the problem. Other people are the problem. Like maybe Mm -hmm. that just is is easier. And I'm protecting myself from feeling like I'm not Mm -hmm. worthy. I'm not showing up. I'm not proud of the way that I am. And so maybe it's like protecting myself from that too. Yeah. I think that there's a few different lanes that we could go down. But the first one that came up for me was your fear of being surprised. Interesting. And my, and we don't need to make this into a a you session, (laughs) but I, I think it would be valuable to become curious about like, where have you seen other people be surprised and devastated? Or where have you been surprised and devastated in the past? It's like the fear of what's to come and trying to get ahead of it and be like, well, I knew all these problems ahead of time. That part that's very protective of like, if I can point out all of the issues now, then at least I know I'm not going to be surprised 30 years down the road when the other shoe drops or something like that. No, that's so true. It's like wanting to feel in control so that If I can like pinpoint this and tweak it, then I am in control. Then nothing can happen in the future. Then I get to keep this Mm -hmm. happy relationship that I love and this person that I love without feeling like the other shoe is going to drop. Yeah. Control plays a big part in our relationships and does get tied deeply into other things, right? Whether it's like a fear of being surprised, like I'm glad that you were able to say I need to be in control. But what happens when... I need to be in control and I show up in this way in the relationship. It's like we know that there is an impact, obviously, on the other person. And it also keeps you from something yourself, too. Mm. Wow. Okay. As much as I would love to keep going on my own personal therapy (laughs) with you, we are going to wrap up with some rapid fire questions, Vienna. First question, your favorite portrayal of family dynamics in media I always like to ask this question. So if it's a movie, if it's a reality show, anything that you see and either are like, I think that's interesting how they work through things or maybe they portrayed an ideal communication style, like any Mm -hmm. family relationship that you look at and are like, that's good. Okay. 
I loved This Is Us. That show, you got to see the littles and the mediums and the bigs, meaning like the like child version and then the teenage version and then the adult version. I mean, that's like a Vienna. <laughs> that's a Vienna show because <laughs> it was fully designed to present to you like present day patterns in these adult lives. But we started to understand why these patterns were there based on what their childhoods were like and based on their teen years. And so This Is Us, I think, was a brilliant portrayal of a family system and its intricacies and the complexities. In some ways, that was like origin wounds on display. So I loved This Is Us. I think it was incredible. And they were a beautiful family that had their hardship and it wasn't perfect. Not everybody was a wise, mature adult in every moment, but it felt like such a real family going through hard stuff together and getting to the other side, which to me is at the core of a beautiful attachment. I love that. That is such a good example. That I feel like is just like your entire theories, practice, everything like applied to a TV show. So that's so true. Okay. Your favorite affirmation. This is one of my favorite quotes, Warsan Shire. And it says, my alone feels so good. I'll only have you if you're sweeter than my solitude. And that might not sound like your traditional affirmation of like, I'm looking in the mirror and here's what I'm going to say to myself. (laughs) But I, I love this quote so much. It has stood the test of time for me when I was single. I'm married. I have a child with my husband. I want to love my alone so much that I will only trade it when the connection and the relationship is sweeter than the solitude. And that doesn't mean rainbows and butterflies only. Like the sweetness can come from growth, right? It's like, oh, we're going through a hard thing and how sweet it is to grow with you and to evolve with you and to learn something new about myself and to learn something new about you. And so I love that quote. It probably is my favorite non-Vienna quote that exists I love that so much. It's like yeah. how you love yourself, but also the relationships that are worth allowing in, in your life too. Like it's kind of changing the perception of both in this like very beautiful way. Yeah. I love it. And I, I think there's something, right? It's like to, to be sweeter than my solitude as opposed to distracting me from my solitude. Yeah, We choose a lot of people to distract us from our solitude, to help us get away from our alone. And so to enjoy our alone so much and then to engage with people who make it sweeter, that don't distract Mm. us from it, but make it sweeter. That distinction is really profound. Wow, that's so good. Okay, best piece of advice you've ever received? Don't be afraid to be the one who loves the most. We often will withhold or you're like, oh, I don't want to give up the power. Let the other person love you more. I think some folks have maybe received that message before. There's something really beautiful about just existing in the truth of whatever is there. Don't be afraid to let it sing. Don't be afraid to let it live. You don't need to hold back. You don't need to play games. Just allow yourself to be fully expressed. 
how would our world change? How would our relationships change if we weren't so afraid to be the one who loves the most? And to even know that if everybody were doing that simultaneously, you know, if both of us were doing that, we would both feel deeply loved and connected to and admired and respected. And just like, yeah, to just keep on giving what is there. You're so right. We're told that the power is held in the person that cares less. So that's a position of power because then you're less vulnerable. You're less likely to get hurt. But that's so true. Like how powerful is it to actually love so hard is such a powerful thing. The greatest feeling we could ever have is love. So therefore to love without regard, without worry, without fear, vulnerability, like what other emotion would be more powerful than that? Yeah, it's very hard to build something exceptional when you're withholding something very hard Mm. to build something exceptional when you're protecting yourself. And so to recognize how much actually gets limited when we are holding something back. And of course, it's a risk. I mean, relationships are risky. The like idea that something might not work out is gut-wrenching. It's devastating. These are hard things to hold. And yet what happens when we limit and withhold from our position? Are we ever getting to experience the greatness? Oh my God, that is so good. Okay, I knew that these rapid fires with you were not going to be rapid fire, which I love. No, totally. I'm I'm (laughs) failing at this. I'm not giving you quick answers. (laughs) Those are my favorite answers though, is when I'm like, oh, we could go on a whole side tangent about this. Last rapid fire question for you. A book that changed your life. Oh my gosh. This question is always so hard for me. It's always so hard for me to choose just one. Okay. You can give a few. I really have loved, of course, Brene Brown's work. So many of her books. Dr. Alexander Solomon. I love her book, Loving Bravely. I thought that was an incredible book. Um, My husband's book, Men's Work, with working with men and their shadow. It's so, 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 so good. Harriet Lerner. I've also really enjoyed Esther Perel's work. Oh my God, there's so many. Britt Frank, Science of Stuck, so good. There's so many. I'll have to create a list and (laughs) send them out to everyone. You should literally, I want all of your book recs. Heathered Soul. Oh my goodness. There's just, there are so many. There are so many. It's impossible. I can never answer this question. You should have a reading list somewhere because I would read all of them, but those are great starting Something to do. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Add it to the list. Okay, Fiona, thank you so much for joining us. Wow, this was such a fascinating conversation. Where can everyone find you? Give us your social channels, podcast, where they can get the book, everything about you. Absolutely. Please order a copy of The Origins of You, How Breaking Family Patterns Can Liberate the Way We Live in Love. You can get that anywhere that books are sold. So wherever your favorite bookseller is, go there. You can find me on Instagram at MindfulMFT. That's Marriage Family Therapy. You can listen to my podcast, This Keeps Happening. You can listen to that wherever you get your podcasts. And then Your Couples Counseling is my website for the practice, viennaferrin.com for me. But I'm so grateful to have had this conversation with you. And thank you for leading such a, such a beautiful conversation. Thank you so much, Vienna. It was an honor and a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I know I sure did. 
If this episode gave you any value or you're liking the show in general, please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a huge difference for our show so we can keep growing and bringing the content that you love. If you want more info, you can find us at The Every Girl Podcast on Instagram or theeverygirlpodcast.com. Talk to you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.